Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. It's the age-old question, right? Why do we do what we do? What desires, assumptions, or thoughts, or lack thereof, are behind our actions every day? How do we define the ultimate good, and how are we going about achieving it? This is the realm of ethics. And we've got a few new questions these days regarding ethics, or at least new ways of asking these questions in the age of coronavirus. Now, there are the small issues such as if I meet a new neighbor and she puts out her hand for me to shake it, do I shake it? Is it more neighborly to do that? Or is it more neighborly to protect myself and her against germs and not take her hand? And then there are what we might call the bigger questions. Like when is it okay for an economy, a country, a church to go back to work? And how should we go about it? What spiritual questions lie behind the ferocity of some of these arguments? And how can Christian tradition provide illumination? Dr. Elizabeth Kincaid and Father Stuart Clem join Father Jeff Hansen to discuss the moral questions that have been brought into sharp focus by the COVID-19 crisis, including some hidden ethical groundwork guiding current debates and decisions. Elizabeth is Assistant Professor of Ethics and Moral Theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary. She holds a Juris Doctorate and a PhD in Theology, and she's been involved in thought projects and ministries of many kinds, including speaking at Anglican conferences and campus ministry to law students. Stewart also has his PhD in Theology, and he is Assistant Professor of Moral Theology and Director of the Ashley O'Rourke Center for Health Ministry Leadership at the Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis. And also, quick shout out, he is a former classmate of mine at Duke Divinity School. Thanks to them for this great conversation.
Okay, so this is Father Jeff Hansen from the Church of the Advent on Beacon Hill in Boston, speaking today with Elizabeth Kincaid and Father Stuart Clem. So both of you work on historical theology, and you're formed by historical theology. And I'm wondering, what kind of resources does your own area of expertise provide for reflection on contemporary problems like the one that the church faces right now? Well, I will, I'll, I'll go first. Um, I think one of the issues we see across political divides is a lack of a, of a knowledge of the common good and what the common good actually means. John Courtney Murray, the great Jesuit theologian, has this great line about how we are opaque to one another. We are so centered in our own, in own individualism, we can't figure out how to undertake any common products. And uh, Father Stewart and I uh, work on a tradition that has sustained reflections on the nature of the common good. A, and hopefully that is a resource that can be brought into our contemporary dialogue to enrich a really impoverished discussion going on right now. One, one thing that I, I feel like uh, I instantly gravitate towards when we have you know, widespread ethical debate or sprung on us in, in crisis situations like the one that we're in right now is I, I go back to a, kind of a pattern that we find in historical circumstances where people are, are having similar debates about, about the common good, about moral questions. And I think one of the most helpful things that we can do as a sort of preliminary step in having those discussions is asking ourselves, okay, amongst these, these people or these groups that are having debates, to what extent are these actual debates of competing notions of the good? Or, or are there actually perhaps even more shared fundamental assumptions than the interlocutors realize, in which case we need to sort of tease out exactly where the differences lie? So, for example, in the Middle Ages, you might have folks debating the actual nature of say, the good life or the proper political order, and you might have some fundamental differences amongst Christians and Muslims, for example, um, that, are, that are really being you know, hashed out. Um, but in other instances, what you might find are, a, for the most part, shared notion of the good. They, it's just that the interlocutors differ on the best way to achieve that good, in which case the questions really might be uh, empirical in nature or questions of, of prudence. Uh, so just as a helpful first step, it's, it's worth asking ourselves, these people who are arguing, are, are they really clashing uh, views of the good or do we really just need to kind of take a step back and, and ask some different questions? So I guess one thing that I think might be clarifying to know more about is sort of how you perceive that notion of the common good as differing from whatever whatever sort of appeals that we hear being made to a similar notion today, right? I mean, is, I, I wonder whether the problem is something like whether we have a tacitly utilitarian notion of something like the common good now that around which these debates are being hashed out and that that simply is not the same thing that, say, the great sort of medieval neoplatonic synthesis had in mind, even though that synthesis sort of contained within itself three monotheistic uh, traditions, they nevertheless, in a way, as you point out, sort of have the same kind of um, starting points, the same kind of fundamental assumptions that guided a common research agenda. And uh, uh, does that make sense as a sort of potential diagnostic for our situation now? Yeah, I think that's exactly um, 
an important question. I'll say uh, Daniel Salmasi, a bioethicist at Georgetown, actually had a great article in the tablet on this where he was talking, he analyzed the three different notions of the common good, um, starting with the, that are sort of popping up in contemporary discourse related to specifically the conflict between sheltering in place and opening the environment and um, the classical no, the classical Catholic understanding of the common good. And I think you're right. The utilitarian one is the one we see most frequently, which is basically people saying, well, let's add up what's going to contribute to the greatest, the um, greatest amount of overall good and setting that against, in a certain sense, the good of these individuals, particularly the individuals who are most likely to be at risk of um, mortality from COVID-19, as opposed, and, and that there's a real tension there, as opposed to the medieval knowledge of the common good, which sees the good of the individual and the good of the community as complementary to each other, as opposed to this sort of, yeah, a utilitarian calculus that you're, you're running and some people get tossed to the side to achieve some greater amount of the common good. Seems like um, d- uh, the lieutenant governor of Texas saying, you know, we should be willing to die. People over 70 need to be willing to die for the, the good of the economy is a great example of utilitarian notions of the common good. Yeah, that's the sort of example I was hoping that you might be able to come up with, right, to sort of illustrate the distinction that we have in mind. Was there something else you wanted to add to that? Yeah, it's, it's helpful. Um, I appreciate Elizabeth writing that so there are different notions of the common good. And I mean, it's, it's worth noting also that there, there are plenty of people who don't like that term at all and would be opposed to uh, invoking it uh, in this kind of debate. I mean, and for various reasons and perhaps even for competing reasons. Um, but on the other hand, those who do think it's a helpful concept uh, don't necessarily agree on what the concept is. Um, so again, another just just to flag uh, this as an important uh, idea that needs to be unpacked if we're going to bring it into the discussion. I think uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, offers at least one helpful starting point and, and perhaps um, an antidote to um, the, the kind of the false perceptions or misunderstandings of the common good that a lot of people have. So the way the Catechism uh, defines the common good is as the sum total of social conditions which allow people to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. What's striking about that understanding of the common good is that it doesn't, um, at least not in, in an overt way, it doesn't pit individual good against common good. So it's not what a lot of people imagine, which is this kind of, well, it, it does sort of <laughs> harken back to the, the lieutenant governor's comments, right? That you you just make you simply have to make sacrifices, personal sacrifices for the greater good. And you know, if those sacrifices are, are painful or perhaps even uh, result in you sacrificing your own life, then so be it, because the whole is greater than the parts. And that's the principle. It's a very kind of totalitarian understanding of that principle. And that's, that's very much not what we find in the definition uh, in, in the Catholic Catechism, for example, that it spells out that it's actually a means for people to reach their, their fulfillment, and that includes their individual fulfillment. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot that could be explored there, but I think the simplest way to understand it is to say that, at least on, on this understanding of what it means to be human, that we actually can't flourish or fulfill our good as individuals if we're neglecting the common good. So if, if we take that as a starting point, then it, it gets rid of this, this notion of competition of the, the whole versus the, uh, the part. So um, that, that's, that's one way that we can think about the common good. I wonder if we see the same problem, though, almost from a different direction, right? When we find sort of 
an opposite type example might be the kind of fury that we've seen vented against um, people who are perceived to be uh, insufficiently cooperative with the demands of public health, right? And that, um, you know, if, if you go for a, a walk with your uh, spouse, you know, whom you sleep in the same bed with <laughs> every night, and you're shrieked at to, to move away from each other, right, which makes no sense from the point of view of public health. But as, but as if sort of to fail to do that is to, is to directly threaten somebody else's life, right? I mean, is it possible that there's a similar kind of faulty thinking that sort of expresses itself in a different set of potential examples, but that really boils down to, in a way, the same kind of, to use the word calculus that was used before, I think is probably right. Does that make sense as a sort of another way of illustrating the same dynamic, but manifesting in a different way? Yeah, I, I get that. I think so. Um, I've definitely seen a sort of similar discussion going on around essential workers who aren't healthcare professionals that sometimes you may find the people who are the most concerned about maintaining these really strict rules of social distancing are significantly, are much more concerned about the the person walking down the street with their spouse than say the essential worker who is forced into this you know, working at the grocery store because of socioeconomic conditions, and that that may show a a very narrow view of the common good, which is, well, the common good is wealthy people like me maintaining the rules to keep all of us safe without a broader view of other people in society and how they're being impacted. Yeah, I think I don't think that this is um, the point you were necessarily trying to to illustrate uh, with that example, but I, it just it brought to mind again the the comment I made earlier about the empirical side of the debate versus the actual sort of metaphysical and moral side of the debate that, that people who are getting upset at, at people that they perceive not to be following, you know, shelter in place orders, or it may just be a matter of, of simple misunderstanding or not understanding who counts as an essential worker. You know, um, that's a matter of political prudence. You know, who, who should we actually uh, say, you know, it, it makes sense for this person or this group of people to, to be in riskier situations, whereas other groups we say no, it's more prudent to require that they stay at home. Again, those are those are empirical questions, right? And those those require a certain kind of understanding and expertise, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there are actually competing moral notions in those kinds of interactions. Do you think there's been a lack of charity around that issue? Because I, I tend to feel that some of the more sort of accusatory and overheated rhetoric, right, that we hear thrown around seems to precisely be a function of a failure to acknowledge that every party is equally interested in maximizing those conditions for a flourishing life, right? And it seems unfair to sort of accuse the other of not supporting that, whereas I feel like much of the of the debate has come down to kind of a putative argument between like lives and dollars, right? I mean, how do you, how do you respond to something like that way of framing the question? Because we're talking ultimately about sort of what what sorts of issues are at stake and kind of coming back to some sort of state of normalcy, if that's even the right way to put this. But in doing so, it seems like that question has been put in terms of again, sort of like life versus dollars, as if sort of one party is interested in one and the other party is interested in the other. And I wonder how you respond to the way that that's been prevalent, or if you perceive it as prevalent. Maybe maybe that's not the way to put it either. Sure, sure. Well, um, no, I, th I think there's definitely been a lack of charity. And I think that, uh, again, just to kind of illustrate the point I've been trying to make here is that it would be really helpful 
I think if we could do a better job of stepping back and asking, what do we all perceive to be at stake when we're having these debates? Because I, th- I think it, I mean, it is perhaps true that on the one hand, there are some people who perhaps have a very calloused worldview and really do think this pandemic is going to result in, you know, loss of life and and greater adversity for some people, but so be it. You know, that's just kind of the way of the world. And uh, th- there are, I think, people who really, who think that way. But I, I think that the majority of people who are upset about the current restrictions in our society, in particular thinking of our American context, I really think that the majority of those people simply think that they're, that these measures are not necessary to achieve the ultimate goal of simply recovering the way of life that we had before the pandemic began. I mean, I think I think that the majority of people in our country are simply trying to sort of get back to normal, and the dispute is about what methods are going to get us there mo- the the quickest and the most efficiently. And there are people who think that these extreme measures and stay-at-home orders are just a waste of time because they're not necessary. And that if we can just sort of, you know, get back to work, as people are saying, or open up the country, um, then we will more quickly get back to the way of life that we had before. Whereas those on the other side are saying, no, if we if we lift these restrictions too early, the disease is going to spread even more rapidly than it has been. It's going to overload our healthcare system. It's going to affect even more of our, our friends and family than it was before. And, and that will actually prevent us from getting back to that way of life that we all want, it's going to actually drag things out even longer if we, if we you know, are too eager and too zealous to lift these restrictions. But what's interesting is that both sides have the same goal that they're trying to achieve. And so again, it, it's really about, um, about prudence and about the empirical questions and about the science, the science of the spread of the disease. And those are really the questions that are at stake. And, I, and again, I, I'm describing two groups I think those groups just really do describe the majority of Americans. There are others who, who perhaps don't fit into to either of those two categories, and it's worth talking about those groups as well. But I, I think that just framing it that way is, is an important and helpful reminder for all of us. And to pick up, I completely agree with Stuart, and what the, the sort of tension he's illustrating, I think, points to is an underlying struggle we've been having in our country for a long time that this pandemic has brought into really um, sharp focus is just differing understandings of who are the experts, who are the sources of authority in our lives. And you see this in the White House press conferences. You see kind of different presentation of different types of experts. You see this in the rhetoric of, you know, I'm going to assert my expert versus your expert. You see it in the opinion pieces. Um, and I think we, I think the struggle, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate Stewart's emphasis on the shared desire of most, most Americans. But the question really is, who do, who do you believe? Who is the expert? Because none of us on our own, I think we all know none of us on our own have the capacity to reason our way out of this. So it's just what voices are you hearing? How do people 
weigh the different sources of uh, information, right? And I mean, both of you also work in practical ethics, right? So you've got expertise in some ways in the issues that confront uh, decision making in this area. But we also sort of make uh, pastoral decisions. And I'm, I'm thinking about like, how would you advise a bishop, right? Or something like that. You know, if someone in the position of like that who had, who had pastoral needs to consider and has to consider in a way the whole person, right? What do you tell them? You know, what would you say in terms of what sources of authority do we listen to, right? And how do we make a decision about an issue in which the decision maker is themselves not an expert, right? And yet we're besieged, as you, as you point out, on all sides by sort of supposed experts or rival claims to expertise. Well, if I can, I'd like to echo uh, Elizabeth's analysis and, and add perhaps even another layer to this that will help us maybe be in a better position to answer that question. And, and that is not only is there a question of expertise and, and what counts as expertise and who has it, but also the practical application of that expertise, meaning those in political power, right? Like who gets to, who gets to decide based on the best available information when laws are going to change. And I think when we look at the way that that's unfolding in the U S what we see is just kind of a microcosm of what's been happening the last five years in uh, in our political climate. And, and what, what I'm referring to is um, just the way in which uh, such a large portion of middle America feels disgruntled and uh, not understood by the rest of the population. And what's one thing that's fascinating to me about this, this entire crisis, and I don't think enough attention has been given to it, is, and, and maybe, maybe this is just a coincidence, but if it is, it's a fascinating coincidence that if you if you look at a map of the the outbreak of coronavirus uh, in the U.S., it's you know mostly I mean with a few exceptions mostly concentrated on the coasts, right? Which is I mean kind of obvious makes sense. I mean this is where uh, densely populated cities, lots of travel, uh, you know, across uh, both the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean, and you know people coming in, and that's that makes sense that the disease is going to be you know more concentrated on the coast than in the middle of the country. That also maps on to our political divisions in really interesting ways. And so it's, you know, it's one thing to say, well, yeah, I mean, look at New York, right? Look, look at California. Look at, look at the way that it's multiplying so quickly and that so many, so many lives are being lost on a daily basis. But not everyone in middle America feels that. And, you know, maybe they should. Maybe, maybe we need to appeal to some other moral notions to say that, you know, there is a sense in which we are all in this together. And, and just because we don't, see as many cases, you know, in, uh, in, the, in the Midwest, for example, um, doesn't mean that people who live there have the luxury of just ignoring what's happening. That, I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I am suggesting is that we need to be more in tune in the way that this, in which the crisis really does look different in different places. And that relates to this question of expertise and authority and political prudence and who gets to decide when restrictions are lifted. So um, in my home state where I'm from, I live in St. Louis now, but uh, I, I grew up in, in Oklahoma and still have a lot of family there. And the governor just announced uh, yesterday or today that he was going to be lifting restrictions uh, on, on business and you know, on commerce and, and in somewhat measured degrees. It's not just a complete lift of, of all restrictions. But there's been some backlash because a lot of people feel like it's not, it's not time for that yet. And... Um, to kind of put a finer point on it, the the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Oklahoma 
sent out an email to all the clerks. I'm still canonically resident in the diocese, so so I, I got the email myself. And he said, um, you know, while I appreciate the governor's intentions, I, I myself don't see enough evidence to see for of a downward turn to be in a position to allow uh, public worship services to start back up again in the diocese. And so he extended the restriction on public worship services until at least May 15th. I think that's wise. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not an expert. I don't even live in Oklahoma, but from the from the information that I do have, that makes sense to me. But that's that's it's a perfect example of the way that this is all unfolding. That you've got, you know, a state in Middle America that where the facts on the ground are quite different. Their self perception as a community is quite different from the rest of the country. And then you've also got differences of. Um, domain of authority, where you're talking about a good, the governor of the state and the bishop of the diocese that happens to have the exact same geographical boundaries as the state. And you have a state, I mean, Oklahoma and Texas are very similar, um, where the diocese is both rural and urban. And so even within the state, you're going to be having different um, different pressures from the rural constituencies and the urban constituencies. And Jeff, to your question, just to elaborate further on Stuart's point, I think for the bishops, and for the governors, um, Stewart's mentioned this several times, but this is the time for the virtue of prudence and that we have to pray that we have political leaders who possess the virtue of prudence and that we have bishops who possess the virtue of prudence. And one of the things I've thought about with thinking about bishops and what they should do in this situation is, you know, there, there's been a, a number of priests who have kind of put on a, a martyr pose about this, right? Like I, I should be out there serving, but of course the people who are, and I say this as a laywoman, um, the people who are most at risk with resuming worship are not the priest, is actually not the priest. It's the lay people who are all sitting in the pews close together for a sustained amount of time. So I think that there are, um, yeah, advising a bishop and how, how to engage with this requires Weighing it, the scientific evidence, weighing the decisions of political authorities who have their own type or should have their own type of wisdom and expertise, considering um, the different constituencies. And then at the end of the day, asking why do we have Christian worship and figuring out how to balance. I mean, all the government and and the scientists can give us a lot of data, but they can't tell us why we have Christian worship. And the job of the bishop is to bring those two questions, bring that data set and that the answer to that question together and determining how to move forward. I think that's what I'm driving at. I'm sort of wondering what are the theological distinctives about uh, this question, right? If the question is approaching normalcy or returning to normalcy, restoring something of public worship, you know, there's there's practical issues, right? Uh, but there's also, it seems to me, theological issues that really weigh on that decision. And one of them certainly has to be something like, how do you square, you know, or reconcile prudential concerns about limiting uh, the sacramental life of uh, the people in a given area uh, with our our commitments to uh, or our understanding of worship and the particularly the centrality of the Eucharist to that worshiping life. One of the gifts that I hope comes out of this for the church. Actually, I guess there, there's two gifts I hope come out come out of this for the church. One is this greater sense of our role in the common good and a sense of responsibility for our communities and thinking about how our actions affect the community. And the second one, which was related to it, 
is this opportunity to think really creatively? And I don't mean that in sort of a, oh, well, you know, all church should go online for all time or something. I, I don't mean that at all. But to ask these questions about what are the gifts of the sacraments? How do we provide them to people? What are new ways we can think about providing them to people? And it's not going to just stop when, you know, whenever sort of the doors are open. So it, to me, is a really, there, there's a potential for some really exciting discussion. One of the things I'm really interested in is a greater emphasis on spiritual communion. I mean, Stuart and I were both formed at Roman Catholic schools and have taught in Roman Catholic institutions. So spiritual communion is a reality in both of our lives, as well as our engagements at our parishes. Yeah. And this is, I mean, it's, it's a little bit off the, the beaten path as far as our, our topic at hand, but um, Elizabeth's comments just made me think of this as well. So if I, if I can be a little bit autobiographical, I mean, personally, I, uh, I've been very much formed by the, the Catholic tradition and, and find myself aligned more with the, the Catholic uh, kind of wing of Anglicanism. And, and so one of the things that that means is that uh, have a high, uh, high view of the Eucharist and think that its frequent reception is, is a good and important thing. Uh, and of course, that's been severely limited uh, in, in the current crisis. And I know that there are, I have a lot of um, friends in, in the Anglican tradition who uh, are are on the more uh, low low church end of the spectrum and um, have long lamented the the prominence of the daily office and, and morning prayer, which used to be actually uh, the norm uh, in in most Episcopal churches before before the seventy nine prayer book, especially. Uh, but one of the interesting things that's that's come up, uh, given what we're having to do and how we're having to uh, get get creative, as Elizabeth put it, um, in the midst of this pandemic, is that a lot of churches uh, have switched to morning prayer, and that includes my own my own church uh, here in St. Louis, the Church of St. Michael and St. George. That um, the service that we offer on Sunday mornings is now morning prayer. I've just been um, I've had to kind of take a step back and say, wow, it's it's so remarkable how many people who didn't have much exposure at all to the daily office are are now encountering it at least on a weekly basis if not on a daily basis and so and so hopefully what i would love to see is that you know once we sort of go back to normal that will also go hand in hand with a renewed appreciation for and use of the daily office well what do you i mean you know i think i think that sets up one thing that we need to do in the future. What else do you, would you say that we can learn from learn from this going forward in the church? Well, I think hopefully one thing that we've learned, and I think it's an ongoing discussion. So I would I would be hesitant to say to um, you know this is what we've learned or to draw any conclusions. Um, but but hopefully <laughs> we will get to that point and we'll be able to um, have a coherent understanding of online worship because uh, one, another another question that's you know being constantly debated now is once things go back to normal people have become so used to worshiping online that they may not feel the need to go to church anymore i i'm skeptical of that concern to be honest i think that just like all other areas of life people are very eager to go back to the way things were um, just like they're eager to start you know, um, being able to visit friends and family, they're eager to go back to their favorite coffee shops and restaurants, they're eager to go back to the gym. 
you know, people for the most part, I don't think are going to say, oh, wow, that's been really nice not to go how to not to have to go to the gym and work out anymore. I think I'll just stop going and cancel my membership. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe a handful of people, but I think for the most part, people are eager to get back to the activities that they participated in before. And that includes the church. So I'm not as worried about that. But what I what I do think we will need to think about is, you know, is there any kind of place for online ministry going forward? Maybe for those who are, you know, shut-ins or have other reasons they can't go to church. And um, if so, if the answer is yes to that question, then how can we perhaps do it better? And I don't, I don't just mean the practical side of things, um, meaning like sort of the quality of the audiovisual aspects, uh, although that might be part of it, but also do a better meaning uh, with more intention and thoughtfulness and theological coherence. Um, that that would be one thing that I, I hope we can learn going forward. How about you? One of the things I'm excited about that I think could happen in the Episcopal Church, I feel like we've been so trapped in this narrative of decline. Uh, We watch our numbers going down. We watch new divisions arising in the church. We feel like our institutions at threat. And, you know, up till three years ago, for example, I would definitely have said that was the case about Mishota House. And what I, I hope that this time of sort of pause and sorting has given us is the chance to corporately reflect, why does the church matter in the world? What's the significance of, like we were talking about earlier, what's the significance of public worship? What's the significance of our service to the poor? Is this really a witness to God's redemptive action in the world? And if we come back from this, and I'm with you, I think people are going to, most people are going to keep going back to church. I hope we come with a renewed excitement, renewed vigor, and renewed hope um, that we have a real sense of why we're here and what we're supposed what we're supposed to be doing and that this that the challenge has come and that we can just step away from sort of this this focus on a decline narrative and um, move forward really excited about God's actions in the world, God's actions um, through Episcopal churches and through the institutions in the Episcopal Church. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.